Mark chapter 10, beginning now at verse 13, as we saw in the first part of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 10, I should say, in the first section of that chapter, Jesus was speaking to the issue of marriage and divorce. And so it's very natural for him to continue sort of on this family theme coming into verse 13, where we pick it up and read, Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. You can almost paint the picture in your mind, can't you? There's Jesus perhaps uh, sitting down and teaching his disciples or teaching an extended group of people. And then some mothers and perhaps fathers as well. They come and they want Jesus to bless their children. This was a common practice in that culture. People would often bring their children to prominent rabbis, and who better to bring your children to than Jesus? It'd be the kind of thing that they could write in the child's baby book or uh, write on the calendar or something. And remember, well, you remember on this day, we came and we brought you to Jesus, that man who taught such wonderful things, and that man who did so many amazing miracles. He laid his hands on you and he said a word of blessing and he prayed a special prayer for you and we brought you to him. It's wonderful here when it says in verse 13 that they brought young children to him or little children. That specific word for brought or bringing, it can also be used in the sense of bringing a a sacrifice or bringing a dedication unto the Lord. They were dedicating their children to Jesus. They say, here, come, Jesus, come. They belong to you. Bless them. Pronounce a word of blessing upon our children. I think it's wonderful that nowhere in our text do we read that the children ran away screaming or that they didn't want to be with Jesus. It tells us something about the nature of Jesus, doesn't it? The children don't want to hang around the mean man. They don't want to hang around the the man whose cross are always angry or, or has a stern face. It tells us that there was a kindness in the face of Jesus, something welcoming in his whole demeanor that children would want to come to him. And Jesus would come and take the little children in his arms upon his lap and and he would pray with them and pray for them and bless them. But then you have the bad guys in verse 13, right? The disciples. Get away, children. Leave Jesus alone. You know, he's got a lot on his mind. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he says some trouble awaits him there at Jerusalem. And uh, by the way, he's a famous rabbi. And all the miracles he works. He certainly doesn't have time for a bunch of children. Get them out of here. But Jesus said, no. No, let, let the children come to me. Don't put anything as an obstacle in the way of the children. Jesus wants to bless them. He wants to do good things for those children. How important it is as, as, as we are parents and as Christians before the Lord to bring our children to Jesus. It's a duty for children's ministry workers. I thank God that right now there are dedicated, godly people in our church family right now telling your children about Jesus. They're giving them the love of Jesus and bringing them to Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing. But it shouldn't just be left up to the children's ministry workers. Matter of fact, it's not even primarily their responsibility. Parents, it's our job, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's really our responsibility to bring our children to Jesus. And our prayers and our words and our examples can mean so much. I remember reading something from Charles Spurgeon once. He shared about how the prayers of his mother stuck so mightily in his mind that even when he was uh, an old man, he remembered he could never forget the prayers of his mother. In particular, he talked about one prayer that he vividly remembers her praying, and I'll quote him now. 
This is what his mother prayed. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Spurgeon said that the idea of his mother bearing swift witness against him on the day of judgment, it pierced his conscience and it stirred his heart. Well, well, it should. And it reminds us, I mean, that the prayers of a godly mother or father have great power before God, but it is no guarantee. That child still has a will of their own. They still have a decision of their own, but it's true. On the day of judgment, that That child will see before them the fact that they had a mother and father that prayed for them, that loved them, that longed for them to come to the Savior. And that should be our heart towards our children. Might I say it's so important for us to bring our children to Jesus, especially when we remember that they have a whole life in front of them to serve God with. Many of our children, they see our lives now and they're at least somewhat together and and they think that we were just kind of always this way. But we remember what it was like in our youth, right? Our own sin, our own rebellion. Who of us as parents wouldn't want to spare our children that sort of heartache? And then we think, oh, how all that time, even their youth, even even their, their young adulthood and even all of their adulthood could be given in service to the Lord. You might even say that a that a boy is worth more saving than a man. I mean, it's wonderful in God's mercy that he saves those who are old, and, but their lives are, are much gone and worn out, and it's great that they can give to the Lord whatever they can in their remaining years. But when you save a, a young person, there's a whole life in front of them, a long, happy life that they can serve God. And who knows what glorious things God can do with that person. Who knows how many people they can influence and bless. Who knows how many people they can go into and maybe in distant lands and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to. It's a precious thing for us to bring our children to Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Well, not displeased with the children, displeased with the disciples who wanted to push the children away. He was greatly displeased and he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means receive it or enter it. Actually, it says in verse 16 that he took them up in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Isn't it beautiful? In the ancient Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in, that word therefore blessed them in verse 16 is very emphatic. It means he fervently blessed them. Isn't it a wonderful picture? Jesus taking up the children in his arm. They're sitting on his lap. They're playing all around him. They're pulling at his hair. They're messing up his beard. They're all around Jesus. That's how children are. And Jesus blessed them. A blessing for this little girl and a precious blessing for that young boy. And he put a blessing upon each one of them. Now, I think what we really have to take to heart in this, though, is not just the beautiful picture that it presents, but the very solemn words that Jesus gives us in verse 15. Should we read that again? Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. That's a pretty bold statement. That should make us all sit up and take attention. Jesus says, if you don't do this and that, you are not entering the kingdom of God. That should make us all pay great attention. So what does he mean? Well, some people have said, listen, uh, it it means that 
that children are humble and innocent and we should follow in their ways and be humble and innocent before the Lord. And then I think the person who says the children are humble and innocent, I wonder how many children they've known. (laughs) Because not all children are humble, not all children are innocent, certainly not at all times. No, but there is something very characteristic of children that, that is absolutely essential for us to understand and grab hold of if we will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's that children are receivers. They're in a place of absolute dependence. Well, the child doesn't worry about balancing the checkbook and paying the electric bill and buying the groceries. They totally depend upon their parents. When a child first comes into the world, that's all they can do is depend. The, the child, there it is. If the mother does not nurse the child, if the mother does not nurture the child, the, the, the child's helpless. A child is by nature a receiver, and they don't refuse gifts out of self-sufficient pride. Oh, the the little infant doesn't say, well, no, mother, if I can't earn the milk, I won't get it at all. It's grateful for whatever it can get. They, they, They receive without any hint of pride. They're just receivers. And that's what Jesus emphasizes. Look at verse 15 again. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, not earn the kingdom, not do the things that will make you worthy for the kingdom, no, receive it. And if there's any way that we must imitate children, it's in their simple dependence. It's in their simple heart of being receivers. And that's how we can enter into the kingdom of God. And if you don't do that, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. As will be evident in the following account, it's, it's interesting how Mark sets these aside. You really get the feeling that he set these two accounts side by side as a way of contrast. You have Jesus commanding us to imitate children in their humble reception of, of what God gives them and the blessing that Jesus gives them. And then we come to the rich young ruler in verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Interesting question, isn't it? Dramatic scene. The man comes running, first of all. That must have caused quite a commotion. Here's a man running at Jesus. The disciples get nervous. They're saying, well, it's security. You know, what are we going to do here? Who knows what this man wants to do? But he doesn't hurt Jesus. He comes up and he stops before him and he gets down on his knees. If there's not tears on his face, maybe there's tears in his voice. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Let me draw a very elementary conclusion from the man's question in verse 17. Is the man knew that he did not have eternal life. You don't run to Jesus, get down on your knees before him, and plead with him with that question unless you know you don't have eternal life. And you want it desperately. There's a void, an empty spot within your life, within your heart, and you know it must be filled. And you come to Jesus and say, what do I have to do to fulfill it? On the one hand, we, we admire the question. How few people there are who ask that question today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, it's instead, what must I do to make more money? What must I do to to, uh, gain more comforts in life? What must I do to have more fun? What must I do to fix this or to fix that in my life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a wonderful question, but at the same time, it's a terrible question. I'll show you why shortly, and Jesus will expose why, but... Look at Jesus' first reply here in verse 18. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now many people 
have seized upon Jesus' response to the man's question and have thought, well, you see, Jesus is here claiming that, that he's not God. I'm not God. Don't call me good. And those who deny the wonderful biblical doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ sometimes point at this passage and say, well, see, Jesus is denying that he's God right here. Well, first of all, I want you to understand that to call Jesus good teacher, it may not sound like very much in our day and age. I mean, what's the big deal? You call somebody good. But in that day and age, that phrase, that title was never applied to other rabbis. In their minds, it implied sinlessness, a complete goodness. And Jesus and everybody else recognized that he was being called by a unique title. You almost wonder if there wasn't a bit of a gasp from his disciples as the guy said, good teacher, because it was a very strong title to ask Jesus or to address Jesus with. But instead of denying the title, Jesus simply said, why do you call me good? He wasn't denying his deity. He wasn't saying, I'm not worthy of the title, but instead he invited the young man to reflect upon it. It's as if Jesus said, do you really know what you're saying when you call me good? I'll have you know that this man didn't know Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. And I'll tell you why. We can tell that he didn't know who Jesus was just by the question that he asked him. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You know, Jesus, I want to gain eternal life. Tell me how to do it. You're a godly man. You're a wise teacher. Just show me the path. I can do it. I know I can do it. You just show me how. See, folks, that isn't the way to come to salvation. Instead, Jesus isn't a man who just points to us the way of salvation. He is our Savior. The proper thing is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus Will you give me eternal life? Jesus, will you save me? Not what must I do to be saved, but what must I do to gain eternal life? It's no, Jesus, save me. Look at the response of Jesus here to the man in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus said, well, you want to do something to gain salvation. You want to do to inherit eternal life. Well, what about the commandments? And Jesus rattled off several of them. And he said, well, I do them all. Isn't it amazing that Jesus didn't laugh when the man said that? You have to understand that in that day and age, the way people thought is they thought that a a, a person really could keep all the commandments and find salvation that way. Now, of course, to do that, they had to reinterpret what the commandments were all about. They had to take away the heart and the soul of the commandment and look merely at the words. Therefore, when it says, uh, do not murder... If a man never actually killed anybody, then he checked it off his list. Well, I've never murdered anybody. I guess I'm on the clear on that one. But in the Sermon on the Mount, in an expert fashion, Jesus shows us how that that doesn't really go far enough in observing what the commandment's all about. You see, my friends, because you may never actually kill a person, and that's good. But how about the people that you've wanted dead? How about the people that you've pushed out of your life and you've just said, well, I just never want you to be a part of my life. As far as you're concerned, I'm dead. Friends, if looks could kill, how many dead bodies would be strewn all around us? And Jesus is saying, see, there's a problem with the heart. And so it's wonderful that you haven't actually killed somebody. That's great. 
But the commandment speaks to the heart also, not only to the action. And it's true with adultery. It's true with stealing. It's true with the other commandments as well. But you see, when you take away the heart and the soul of the command and emphasize the bare words, you can say, well, I meet this checklist. And the man meant it with all sincerity. I've kept the commands. And Jesus didn't laugh at him in reply. But instead, look at what Jesus did in his reply. Verse 21, isn't it precious? Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that wonderful? You know, by the way, this is just one of those little clues sprinkled throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, for that matter, that demonstrates to us that it was written by eyewitnesses. I mean, who else but someone who was there watching it would ever note such a thing in the detail? Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved the man because he was so lost. Oh, he thought he had it all. But yet by his, his question on his knees and perhaps the tears in his voice or on his face, admitted, no, he didn't have eternal life. He didn't have fulfillment in this life and he didn't have confidence in the life to come. So Jesus looked at him and he loved the man. He, his eyes were filled with love and compassion for the man because his life was so empty. This man was at where a lot of people were at. He, he had a lot of possessions. He was a wealthy man, as we'll learn in a few verses. He had climbed the ladder of success, but then he he looked around and he found out that that ladder was leaning against the wrong building. And so he had achieved something great, but it wasn't what he really needed. It wasn't what he really wanted. And Jesus said, verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. And we read that and all of us swallow kind of hard when we read that. And we say, please, pastor, explain that one away for me. Please tell me that that's not what I actually have to do to be saved. Well, I I will tell you that that's true. I mean, we know that from the entire record of the New Testament. Nowhere is selling everything that you have and giving it to the poor made a requirement for salvation. Nowhere. That's not the requirement for salvation. We know it from the Old Testament. We know it from the New Testament. The consistent testimony of the Scriptures is clear. Then why did Jesus say this to the man? I think you have to remember what the man asked for. Look at it there in verse 17. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the man thought that he did it all. You see, the man thought of salvation as sort of high jumping. You know, the high jump bar. There he is, you know, he's the high jumper, and and the the high jump bar is four feet tall. And so he runs, and he jumps, and he makes it over. He goes, well, I did that, but there's no satisfaction in his heart. There's no peace. He knows something is amiss. He knows something isn't right. So he comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus about the problem. And Jesus says, well, fine, fine. You want to find salvation by jumping over the high jump bar? Well, here's your problem, is you haven't set the bar high enough. And Jesus comes and sets the bar about 25 feet high. And he says, jump over this. You see, Jesus didn't ask this for the intention of the guy saying, okay, well, I can do this now. I can earn my salvation. I'll sell everything I have and I'll give it to the poor. And then I've earned it. Then I've done what I must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus wanted the man to look back to him. Maybe with tears in his eyes and say, I can't do that. And Jesus would say, exactly. Because it's not about doing. It's about coming to me as a little child and receiving what I have to give you. 
We see instead of challenging the man's fulfillment of the law, which Jesus had every right to do, Jesus took him down another path. He said, so you want to find fulfillment and salvation by doing for God? Then here, do it all. But the man recognized that he couldn't. Look at it here in verse 22. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Well, there is the problem in the heart, isn't it? His clinging to possessions, his, his love of material things. When you get right down to it, this man was more interested in earthly treasures than in the heavenly treasure that he could have in giving away the things that he had. Essentially, this man was an idolater. Wealth was his God. The true God of the Bible was not his God. He put money first. You see, friends, so in his idolatry and in his demanding to, well, to earn his salvation, to do something to achieve it, he could never find it. And so he went away grieved. Well, how many people have almost everything in life, but they go away grieved? And they add possession upon possession. You know, they see their income grow every year, and then they look forward to retirement, and they think, well, they haven't made, but they still, they go away grieved. Because they don't have that peace, that satisfaction, knowing who Jesus is, and knowing that they have a received goodness, a received salvation from Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is going to speak on this exact point, beginning at verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, it's remarkable. The disciples couldn't believe what Jesus was saying. They were like clearing out their ears. What do you mean, Jesus? The, the, the rich people have a hard time being saved? Well, again, it was a very cultural thing for them. In their mind, riches and wealth meant blessed. And if a person was blessed, it meant that God's stamp of approval was upon them. And essentially, this is how they heard what Jesus is saying. The blessed people aren't going to make it to heaven. The people with God's stamp of approval aren't going to make it to heaven because that's what they thought the rich and the wealthy were. But Jesus is taking that illusion away from them. And he's saying, no, it's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. You know, in many ways, we're just like the disciples. We have a hard time seeing how riches would hinder us from the kingdom of God. I don't think there's probably a single person in this room who thinks of themselves as rich. But, but certainly, probably nobody in this room thinks that their real problem is that they have too much. And they need to get rid of some. No, we only think that riches can bring blessing and good. But these words of Jesus, they absolutely amaze the disciples. But we need to understand riches and wealth. It is a, such a potential snare for us. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from in the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now I know what some of you are thinking, what my immediate reaction is to this. I read these verses of Jesus' words and I breathe a huge sigh of relief. I say, thank you, Lord. Because I'm not rich. And Lord, I hope some rich folks are reading this because they really need to hear this. 
And I suppose it all depends on just how you measure wealth, right? You measure wealth among the standards of middle-class America, and perhaps not a single person in this room is rich. Why don't we measure wealth? Well, why don't we measure wealth by the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And when did he ever use a microwave oven? Or drive in a car, or fly in an airplane, or sleep on a mattress, or have an electric blanket, or have uh, air conditioning, or any number of other things. I mean, when you realize that we live at a level right now that was unthinkable for the wealthiest man in Jesus' day, makes you say, well, who is rich? But you see, notice Jesus said something very important in verse 24, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, verse 25, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure and said among themselves, who then can be saved? The disciples are blown away. You're shattering all their conceptions. The rich, you love the rich people more, don't you, God? He's saying, no, they can be an obstacle to the kingdom. Matter of fact, it's, it's so hard that, well, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. People get very creative with this passage. Uh, you know, they, it's got to be some way to explain it away. Um, one of the common interpretations that, that I've heard is that, well, you see, really, there was this gate in ancient Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And camels could go through the gate, but only if they got down on their knees and sort of crawled through. And that's what it means, is that the rich man can enter in, but he must humble himself and get down on his knees before God. Well, I suppose there can be a valid application from that point, but honestly, in my research, I've never had it verified that there was ever actually a gate in Jerusalem known as the Eye of the Needle. I think Jesus is speaking of literal camels and literal needles, but he's using a figure of speech. He's speaking humorously. I mean, a camel was the biggest animal that they would have known in Judea in that time. He didn't say elephant. He didn't say blue whales because they didn't have those animals around there in that part of the world. He would have said an elephant go through the eye of a needle. But the point of it is something very big through something a very small place. It's an impossibility. Why? Why is it harder for the rich than for other people? Well, maybe we should say it's because riches are a snare because they tend to make, they tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the age to come. Oftentimes as well, riches must be acquired at the expense of acquiring God. Oh yes, you're very wealthy and you've made a wonderful career for yourself, but you've pushed God on the outside, haven't you? And so, yes, you've acquired your riches, but you've, you've denied God in the midst of it. As well, we can contrast the dependence of a child with the independence of a rich man. Well, who's more likely to inherit the kingdom of God, a dependent child or an independent rich man? And riches do give us a great sense of independence, don't they? Well, you don't need anybody's help. Look, you've got the big bank account. You're fine. You're doing well. Perhaps most importantly, the biggest, the biggest obstacle perhaps that in the context Jesus speaks about that riches present to the kingdom of God is that the wealthy man is often a very successful doer. I mean, he's done well. Don't we say that about people who are wealthy? Well, he's done well for himself. He's done well, so he's rich. 
I mean, it's very easy. It's almost natural for him to think that his salvation and his relationship with Jesus is also a matter of successful doing, when really it's about humble receiving, as we learned with the example with a child. And so Jesus wants to make it clear. If you notice here in verse 26, they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Let me put it plainly to you, friends. With man, salvation is about as easy as a camel going through the eye of a needle. And you know, I'll add to it as well. I I trust that Jesus would not disagree with me adding this. It's the same way with the poor man. If it's about doing, if it's about what man can do, salvation's impossible. But with God, if salvation is of God, if salvation is something that God does in us and for us, well then, then it can work, my friends. Then all things are possible. Now, we can't resist seeing what Peter says in verse 28. It's so typical of Peter. Then Peter began to say to him, well, see, we've left all and followed you. I love it in Matthew chapter 19. It gives a little more on that. He says, so what will our reward be? What do we get, Jesus? You know, yeah, that dumb old rich young ruler, he didn't leave anything. But what about us, Jesus? What do we get? It's so typical of Peter and really of all of us, you know, the, the rich young ruler walks away, but we're still here, Lord, aren't we? Why does that question seem so typical of Peter? Well, Jesus answers him. And he says, listen, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Oh, don't you see the point of what Jesus is saying? He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I know you've given up a lot for me. Those fishing nets were really nice. Man, those were great. And uh, you know that boat, man, that was top notch, and you gave it up for me. You wonder if Jesus didn't roll his eyes when he heard about that. You know, he's thinking, yeah, this rich guy, at least he had something really substantial to give up. What did you guys have? You had nothing. For some people, leaving all is, is much different than for another person leaving all. But Jesus said, well, fine, you guys will be rewarded. You'll be blessed. You'll receive an abundant return. Matter of fact, a hundredfold. Isn't that marvelous? What a great principle. You can never outgive God. Never. Years ago, a man uh, said to me, he said, Well, I'm going to try a little experiment. He said, He said, I'm going to try to outgive God. And he meant in his, in his giving to the church financially. And so he said, Okay, I'm going to do it. And so, uh, you know, uh, six months later, he said, You know what? I'm still trying. Lord, I'm still trying to do it, and I can't do it. You just can't outgive God. God's not going to be in debt to anybody. Who's God going to owe anything? You can't outgive God. And and what you give him of your resources, of your time, of your life, if you have to give up things for the sake of the gospel, God will reward you. I have to say that some people have have applied this in in a very carnal sort of way, sort of like God's little investment program here. 
You know, and if you drop a dollar into the offering, God guarantees that he'll give you a hundred back. And so it's the best investment you can make. You know, you get a, well, I don't know what kind of percent. It's a, it's a lot of percent return on your dollar. It's just remarkable to see and this is how you should invest. Well, obviously, friends, Jesus is speaking, first of all, not only of material reward, but spiritual reward as well. He's speaking in figure of speech. Otherwise, if it was the case where if anyone... Uh, were ever in a place where they had to, as Jesus says, give up wife for the sake of the gospel, I don't think that he should expect a hundred wives in return from the Lord. You could ask Solomon himself. That would not be a blessing. It would end up being a curse. Oh, Jesus, speaking of spiritual application here, and he says that you'll receive it in the age to come, eternal life. But the principle stands secure, my friends. Nobody is going to outgive God. But then Jesus says something very interesting in verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now Mark moves on to another topic in the next verse. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records a parable that Jesus said to illustrate this exact point. And it's a remarkable parable and it's difficult for me to resist the temptation to go through it in depth. But what the parable shows is that God gives out of his own wisdom and out of his own generosity, and he's fair to everybody, but he doesn't give in the way that man would expect. And that's what it means. The first will be last and the last first. I mean, look about it. If you apply human thinking or just the way we'd normally order things, who's first? The disciples or the rich young ruler? Well, the rich young ruler, of course. Look at all he has going for him. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Well, you can't beat that combination, can you? And then there's this man, a great, great man. That's who the world would put first. But Jesus says, no, that, the world sees him first. I put him last. And the last, my disciples, they're first. Or you can make the analogy with the children. Who would you put first, the rich young ruler or the little children that Jesus came and blessed? Well, the world says it's, it's a no-brainer. These are children. They're just little urchins running about. You know, what, what's the big deal with them? Jesus says, no, they're first. They're first because they will receive from me. They come not demanding to earn. They come not asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But they come humbly asking to receive from Jesus. Might I say, friends, that that's how every one of us must come to Jesus. I'll say something that's so basic that, that it may not even register with some of us, but I think it's something we need to be reminded of constantly. Is that we believe that people do not become Christians. They do not become followers of Jesus Christ by accident. In other words, you don't become a Christian just because your parents were or just because you attend church, or just because, well, you, you, you like to read the Bible every once in a while, or you pray to God. Being a Christian is a matter of receiving what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Not trying to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No, it's putting that away completely, and say, Lord, I'm done with the doing Now I simply want to receive. I know that Jesus died in my place on the cross. I deserve to be up there. I deserve that wrath poured out upon me. Lord, I receive the sacrifice of Jesus in my place. 
Now, we believe that people have to make a conscious acceptance of that. And we believe that to reject Jesus and to reject what he's done on the cross for us means you will not enter the kingdom of God. We also believe that for a person to hear the message and to remain undecided or to figure they'll be neutral, that that is to be decided against Jesus. That there is no neutral ground. Friends, do you understand the implications of what we believe? You, you meet people and are around people all the time who will perish if they do not make a decision for Jesus Christ. And, and you think, well, how can that happen? How can they come to Jesus? How can a difference be made in their life for eternity? Well, friends, it's very simple. God's put you there in their life. So why not look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them? You might say, well, I, I have no equipping for that. I, I don't know if I can do it. Oh, God can equip you. We can help you. And if you can do nothing else, then bring them to church or take them a tape or do something. May God fill our heart with this absolute passion and concern to say, you know, there really is a perishing world around us. And sadly, because the perishing world so often has a smiling face, it's easy to think that it's not really perishing. Oh, but the Lord wants to remind us of that. And friends, let me just say simply that this may be your morning. Maybe you're a person who needs to make a decision for Jesus Christ. You need to make a conscience decision to receive what Jesus did on the cross for you and to make him the Lord of your life, to follow him. Not in the sense of doing something to earn salvation, but to receive the salvation that Jesus so graciously gives. You know the great part about it? Is that if you're in that place, I trust that right now God is speaking to your heart. Maybe he's speaking softly. Maybe he's shouting to your heart saying, this is what you need to do. So I'd say, don't even listen to me. Listen to God as he speaks to your heart. He's talking to you. He's telling you that this is a morning when you can be right with Jesus Christ. Take care that you know how you come. Not as the rich man who said, what must I do? But as the children who humbly receive.